Welcome to the FOI Equip podcast, your free resource for learning and engaging with the scriptures from a Jewish perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Katolka. You know, the scriptures tell the story of God's chosen people and his plan to bring salvation to the whole world through Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Come see why it matters that God would choose an ancient people to bring a timeless hope to a lost and broken world. Now, listen, I want to encourage you to go to foiequip.org to sign up to be on our mailing list. You're going to receive vital information on how you can join our free live online FOI Equip classes. Now get ready. Join our expert staff on the FOI Equip podcast as we teach the scriptures, unravel the colorful world of Jewish culture and customs, reveal God's prophetic plan, and so much more. Now enjoy this teaching from FOI Equip. Let's jump in here. We have been talking about Theodore Herzl. We taught, we, we, we launched this class with Theodore Herzl. And I hope that that class, if you were there, gave you kind of a picture of the influence Herzl had and still has on the state of Israel today, the modern state of Israel. And then the, the next week, we looked at David Ben-Gurion and how he helped to form the government that would eventually become the first Israeli government. Um, and he's a great picture of him there. But my favorite picture of David Ben-Gurion is when he's standing on his head in his bathing suit on the beach, on the Tel Aviv beach. Uh, so you should just look that up if you ever get a chance to Google it. And then tonight, we're going to be studying a very fascinating man, a, a very unique man, uh, a man that most people would probably consider. And I'm not joking with you. If you met him, you'd probably think, this guy's a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, okay? He's out there in another level, uh, and I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know what he's thinking. He just, he he had a mind of his own, uh, but really, even in his own state that you might even consider a little crazy, because some of the things you're going to hear about are a little out of the, a lot out of the box, I should say, very out of the box, um, would actually become one of the most influential men in the development of the modern state of Israel. So let's get into it. Uh, let's first, we were talking about Theodore Herzl. I've already said all these guys. There's David Ben-Gurion. And now we're looking at Eliezer Ben-Yehuda. He was born on January 7th, 1858. And you'll see that all of these men were born around the same time, 1886, 1860 for Theodore Herzl. And so he was the he was born first of the three um, but I saved him for last for a reason, actually. And so I, you'll, you'll see that tonight. Um, but his real name was actually Eliezer Yitzhak Perlman. Um, and so he actually comes from what is now known as Belarus, but it was a part of a large and Russian empire at that time. Um, he was raised by Chabadnik parents. That's Hasidim, or you might know them as ultra-Orthodox parents. And they grew up in the language that he knew was the Yiddish language. And uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to the Jew and Gentile podcast, which you can find on foiequip.org, Steve and I always like to do a Yiddish word of the day. But he spoke fluent Yiddish. That's what he was raised with. He was educated very traditionally in Eastern Europe at this time and in, in, the, in the Russia area in, in what was called a, a cheder or a Jewish elementary school where they read Torah, they read the Mishnah, they read the Talmud, and they were exposed at that point, even earlier in life, to Zionism, the idea that the Jewish people would return to their ancient homeland, which would compel him in 1881 to actually immigrate to Palestine through a series of events in his life. 
he would go on to form the Academy of the Hebrew Language while he was living in Palestine. And uh, his politics through and through, I, I think it's very fascinating. His politics were Zionism, restoration. And think about this. I read this about him. The rejection of diaspora lifestyle. If you're not familiar with the word diaspora, it, diaspora is the word uh, that's used for talking about Jewish people that are living outside of the land of Israel. And so if you're Jewish and you're living in L.A. or New York City or Paris or wherever, guess what? You're living in diaspora. And if you're living in diaspora, he rejected that lifestyle. He believed Jewish people should be returning to their ancient homeland um, and you'll see some of the measures that he went to to prove his dedication to this to, the, to this lifestyle that he wanted to live. Um, and so he was a very, uh, I should say the word hardcore about his his lifestyle and his philosophy and his the, the way he understood the importance of Israel, what would become Israel. Um, in 1877, this is actually very interesting. I'll tell you what was going on while he was living in the Belarus area. He had not immigrated yet. But in 1877, remember, because he immigrates in 1881. So in 1877, the Russian uh, Russia proclaimed war on the Ottoman Empire, which would have been right next door to it, to aid their fellow Slavs, the Bulgarians, to regain their independence from the Turks. And Ben Yehuda... He was just captivated by the idea of restoring the Bulgarians to their rights and reviving the Bulgarian nation on its national soil. So ultimately removing the Ottoman Empire that had control of these people. Um, the Russians were helping them do this, push back the Ottoman Empire. And, the, and, and Ben Yehuda was behind, I mean, Eliezer Ben Yehuda was behind it. He wanted it to happen. And he was, he was, he was enthralled with the idea that the Bulgarians would regain their nationality and regain their their independence and re and take back the land that was once theirs that got gobbled up by the Ottoman Empire. And you know what's interesting is this will actually this isn't the first time this happens. He you know Ben Yehuda starts studying more and more about this idea of people taking back their land, the land that was once theirs. In the 19th century, several European nations have been so revived, perhaps the most celebrated being the Greeks, the heirs of classical Athens in 1829. That's right, the eight, in, in 1829 and the following years, the Greeks took back their land from the Ottoman Turks, just like the Bulgarians did, and they reclaimed their ancient heritage in what is now Greece. Greece was founded a few years later in the early 1830s, the modern state of Greece. And so this captured Ben Yehuda's uh, uh, passions. He was very interested in this idea. Uh, it happened again in, in 1849 when in Rome, uh, 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 the same thing happened. The Italians, uh, they, they took back Rome from the papal state and reclaimed uh, Rome for itself, a section of it. And later on in the 1860s, Italy would actually become its own independent state again. And, and Ben Yehuda was incredibly influenced by these revivals and came to the conclusion, I love this, after seeing the Bulgarians, after reading about the Greeks, after being influenced by the, the what was going on in Italy and Rome, Ben Yehuda came to the conclusion that your, the European concept of national fulfillment should also be applied to his people, the Jews. He felt deeply that if the Bulgarians 
who were not an ancient classical people could demand and obtain a state of their own, then the Jews, the people of the book and their heirs of historic uh, Jerusalem deserve the exact same treatment. And so it wasn't just that he was, notice he's not technically reading the Bible. Uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda, even though he grew up in a very orthodox home and went to yeshiva and went to the cheder, the uh, elementary Jewish elementary school, and he read Mishnah and Talmud, he would actually bend towards secularism quite a bit. And it's at this point in his life, if you notice, he's not just looking at the Bible, he's looking at what's going on in the world around him. And he's saying Jewish people should have the same right the Bulgarians have, and Jewish people should have the same right the Italians have, and Jewish people should have the same right that the Greeks have. And so as all this is taking place in the modern era, not just looking back into history, but in the modern era, seeing this nationality happen. And that was something that kind of burned in his chest. At the same time, I love this. At the exact same time, he's reading a book called Daniel Deronda by the uh, author George Eliot. George Eliot published this book, Daniel Deronda, that was like, everybody was reading this book, okay? If you have Netflix and you know everybody's watching a show on Netflix and everybody talks about it at the water cooler or water, everybody's talking about Daniel Deronda. It was a book that made its way around Europe, Eastern Europe. It was translated, all of that. Uh, and the, the story of Daniel Deronda is about a typical, typical Victorian novel with themes of arrogant women, wealthy people, the sympathetic orphans. What was not at all typical though, the thing that stood out in the book, are you ready? This is what's fascinating. What stood out was the inclusion of a character named Mordecai Cohen, a Zionist in the book, almost certainly modeled on the Dutch, uh, who was the first uh, appealing Jewish figure ever to appear in English literature. Do you hear that? So here's this very typical Victorian novel that's going around, people are reading it. And what is being argued is that typically in writing, Jewish people were looked down upon, anti-Semitism. But in this book, it's fascinating because actually the hero of it is Mordecai Cohen, a Zionist, an act, a person who believes the Jewish people should return to their ancient homeland. It's built in the book. And you know what's amazing about George Eliot is that he's a Christian. He's actually an evangelical Christian who's writing this. And so here's a Jewish man, um, uh, 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 Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who's reading this book and is just being overwhelmed by what's being read and is identifying himself with Mordecai Cohen. Cohen, the character, anticipates the convictions of Theodore Herzl. If you were here in my first class and we talked about Theodore Herzl, who doesn't come onto the scene until the late 1880s, early 1890s, think about this. When, when, when George Eliot wrote Daniel Deronda, uh, her, uh, this is uh, sharing ideas of Zionism decades before Herzl even appears on the scene. And it, it says this, uh, let there be, he proclaims, this is what Cohen says in the book, this is what, what George Eliot writes as Cohen is speaking. He says, let there be, he proclaims, another great migration, another choosing of Israel to be a nationality. And he also inspires the book's title's character to abandon his comfortable life in Britain and to immigrate to Israel. This, do you know what is important about this here? You have a wealthy Jewish guy named Mordecai Cohen and George Eliot talks 
about the fact that he leaves his comfortable life in England behind and he immigrates to to the Holy Land, uh, to the place of Israel's history, the place of the Jewish people's history, which normally did not happen. Actually, I would even argue for the most part, it doesn't happen that much today in modern Israeli immigration of Jewish people making Aliyah, making immigration to Israel. You, you, the numbers of Americans making immigration to Israel is much lower than areas of more poverty-stricken areas of the world or, or even Europe where there's a higher sense of anti-Semitism. Uh, you find more immigration coming from Eastern Europe even today. The idea of American Jewish person leaving behind a very comfortable lifestyle in order to move to Israel, which is a very difficult place to live, not just because of the neighbors, their neighbors, but because of how expensive it is. It's one of the most expensive countries to live in. The taxes are out of control. The culture is vastly different than our culture. The language is different, all of these things. And yet, and yet George Eliot's gonna write from this perspective that this wealthy individual is going to immigrate to the land of his ancestors uh, in fulfillment of the Bible in some way. Uh, listen to this, while plenty of non-Jews read Daniel Deronda, and many critics who did pan its positive Jewish and Zionist elements, plenty of Jews picked up the book as well. And for some of these Jews, George Eliot's work of life, uh, a work, uh, I'm sorry, let me read this again. Uh, and for some of these Jews, George Eliot's work was life-changing for the Jewish people. For some of these Jews, George Eliot provided their first glimpse of Zionism, their first sense of the passion, the fire, the determination that underlay the growing Zionist enterprise. They had never really considered, or in some cases, even really encountered Zionism, and Eliot's words resonated with them in a deeply affecting way. And so it goes on, it says, among those Jews crediting George Eliot was, uh, with sparking their Zionist fervor were this, Emma Lazarus. You know, we often use the phrase, uh, we often um, uh, go to the poem that's etched at the base of, uh, of Lady, Lady Liberty um, in New York, where it says, give us your tired, your poor. Emma Lazarus wrote that, and she was impacted greatly by George Eliot. Another was Eliezer ben Yehuda, considered the father of modern Hebrew language. And a third was Henrietta Solds, the founder of Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America. You see, these, this one man, this Christian man, wrote a book about a Jewish man going back to, 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 to make Aliyah, to immigrate to Palestine at that time under the Ottoman control. And what happens? It not only impacts non-Jewish people and not only paints Jewish people in a positive way, but it even impacts people like Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Eliezer Ben Yehuda, this is his wife, Devorah. We might know the name Deborah. Uh, Eliezer, and this is a picture of him and his wife in 1882. And the two, it's a really sweet story, actually. It's an amazing story how they got married. Uh, when they were still living um, in the Belarus area, uh, the two loved each other for a long time and uh, for something like seven years. And uh, they really wanted to get married. And the parents, uh, her parents were okay with it. And then he came to the parents and said, hey, uh, I actually found out I have tuberculosis. I can't marry your daughter. And for the remainder of my life, I'm going to go live in Jerusalem. 
Uh, and I don't think it's a good idea for her to come with me. The doctors say I have six months left, or it could be six months. And so I think we should just end this here. And uh, the mom and dad of Deborah were like, we really respect that you would do that. Well, guess what? Deborah had a different idea in mind. Deborah had a different idea. She could not stand the fact that she wouldn't be with Eliezer. And so she said to her father, I really want to move with him and be with him. I love him. Uh, and so she actually snuck out of Russia without a passport. She didn't have a passport. She snuck out. Uh, they would end up getting married. Um, in between this time period, Eliezer Ben Yehuda would actually move to Paris to get trained to be a medical doctor to help him when he goes to Jerusalem with a degree of some sort. Um, but he ends up moving over there quicker than he wanted to because he knew he had tuberculosis, which was a, a mortal, um, fatal disease. Uh, so Devorah wouldn't have it. She married and moved to Palestine against her mother's wishes. Her dad Dad said, okay, fine, we understand. But the idea of going with a sick person to a place like Jerusalem in the late 1800s was not a good idea for her mom, but she went against her mom's wishes anyway. Ben Yehuda writes about this, actually. He says, not my sickness, nor a life of sorrow, which seems to be, uh, to be my lot, deterred her from her desire to share my life. Our lives had become one, and the first Hebrew family in modern times had come into being. Uh, he says this to his wife. I love this. Devorah, you are going to be the first Hebrew mother in nearly 2,000 years. Our child will be the first infant in all of these centuries who will come into the world hearing nothing but the beauty of our ancient language. It should be said here, too, just so that I can catch you up a little bit. By this point, Hebrew was still being spoken, but it was only spoken in synagogues. It was not spoken as a common language. It's kind of like Latin um, in the Catholic Church. Uh, even today, Latin's not really spoken in the Catholic Church because of Vatican II. But in the past, Latin was spoken as the language in the church, but nowhere else were people speaking Latin at all, um, even though it was once a common language of the Roman Empire thousands of years ago. But it's the same thing with Hebrew. Hebrew was spoken in the synagogues. Hebrew was read in the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, but it was not uh, uh, spoken as a common language. And this is something that will drive Eliezer ben Yehuda to take it from the prayer books and from the Torah, the prophets and the writings, and to turn it into the common language of the Jewish people as he's immigrating to the Holy Land. I want to share this with you because this is one of my favorite little sections of uh, the conversation that Devorah, and, and to show you kind of the mind of Eliezer a little bit. Uh, I'm telling you, he was a unique individual. Um, he says this to his, his wife. Uh, I must ask you, dear Devorah, that from now on, you shall speak only Hebrew. We must set an example for our people, talking about the people in Jerusalem, in, 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 uh, in the Holy Land, for those who would come after us. Hebrew must live again. It must be. It must uh, become more than just a language of literary exercise. We must run our home in Hebrew, bring up our children in Hebrew, make love in Hebrew. If we fight and argue, even that we must do in Hebrew. She answered, but I really don't know any Hebrew, dear. And he insisted, until you do, keep quiet in Hebrew. Okay, I love that line. That is phenomenal to me. On the spot, while still in Europe, he began teaching her words 
in Hebrew, like this is a tree, this is a window, a street, a lantern in Hebrew. So she would learn along the way. So you can get the mind, um, the OCD nature of, of uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda. Motivated by the surrounding ideals of renovation and rejection of diaspora lifestyle. So he wants to see the Jewish people return to their ancient homeland. Ben Yehuda set out to develop a new language. This is really important, everybody. A new language that could replace Yiddish. And I know that we don't, you know, we don't, Jewish people don't speak Yiddish that much anymore. It's actually kind of seeing a revival today in the 21st century. But after the Holocaust, Yiddish, you know, uh, lost its influence um, since it was spoken primarily by Eastern European Jewish people who were the most to suffer under the Holocaust. And so uh, he wants to replace Yiddish with Hebrew and other regional dialects as a means of everyday communication between Jews who moved to the land of Israel from various regions of the world. Here was the problem. Honestly, this was the problem. You had Jews moving from Russia, Eastern Europe. There were Jews coming from, uh, from, from Europe itself, maybe from countries like France or Germany or wherever the case might be, and everybody spoke a different language. I'm sure English had made its way in there. I'm sure there were other dialects, other languages. So all of these Jewish people are moving back to the land, and the question's gonna become this, as we grow and we become one in the land, um, and we begin to govern ourselves, what will be our common language? Nobody else ever, think about this, everybody, nobody else was thinking about Hebrew. Nobody was thinking about Hebrew. Hebrew was a prayer language. It was not a common language. That is the last thing they're thinking about. But that's not the last thing that uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda is thinking about. Uh, ben Yehuda uh, regarded Hebrew and Zionism as symbiotic. They're one, writing the Hebrew language can live only if we revive the nation and return it to the fatherland. So the question becomes, and maybe you're asking yourself, where do you even start? You know, think about this today. Today, we can get on an airplane, and when we sit down in the airplane on our way to Tel Aviv, you'll hear English on the airplane. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Please fasten your seatbelts. Enjoy the ride. And then all of a sudden, it switches over, and it's Hebrew. And then you take off, and you land in Israel, and everything's in Hebrew. And we're in the 21st century, and Eliezer Ben Yehuda is doing this work of developing the Hebrew language in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So think about that for a minute. Today, when you go there and you study in universities like, like Bar Ilan or, or, uh, or um, uh, uh, any of the uh, number of, of universities that are over there, um, when when you go, they're all they're teaching in Hebrew. When you go to the courts, they're teaching and they're speaking in Hebrew. When you go to the bank, it's in Hebrew. Everything's in Hebrew. How did how did we get from one man telling his wife on a boat over to Palestine, hey, by the way, uh, drop the Russian. We're only speaking Hebrew now. And she goes, I don't even know Hebrew. How did he do this? Because honestly, he spearheaded this. There were some other people behind him, but his name is the name connected to this revival. Well, he came down to three very simple bullet points. Hebrew in the home, Hebrew in the school, and words, words, words. Hebrew in the home, Hebrew in the school, and words, words, words. 
I want to introduce you to a little kid here named Ben Zion, the son of Zion. His name's Ben Zion Ben Yehuda. He was born in 1882. This is Devorah and Eliezer's very first child. And Ben Yehuda made Devorah promise to raise his boy as the first all Hebrew speaking child in modern history. Well, how, how would they do that? When the child would finally begin to speak on his own, Ben Yehuda would have a living proof that a complete revival of the language was indeed possible. So let me just say what he would do. They were only allowed to speak Hebrew to Ben Zion. That's it. No other language. In fact, uh, Ben Zion, Ben Yehuda, wrote an autobiography about his life growing up. And in his autobiography, he actually tells some of the most amazing things that his parents did in order to only make him speak Hebrew. You know, when you have friends, you you know, when you move to the to, to, to Jerusalem, you're going to, of course, naturally make some friends and you want the friends to come over. And guess what? They don't speak Hebrew. So what do you do when now you're infecting this kid with other languages? This was on Ben, this was on Ben uh, Eliezer's mind. Well, he would make his son go in the other room so that nobody else speaking Russian or any other language, Yiddish, would influence him. So if any company came, Ben Zion had to go in his room so that he couldn't hear the other languages. Only pure Hebrew. Think about that. Uh, in fact, a part of the story is also that one night Eliezer heard his wife singing a Russian lullaby to Ben Zion. Didn't go well for her. Not that anything bad happened, but he was not happy. Because even the little Russian lullaby was enough to taint the work. He, this, was a, this was a test subject. His son was a test subject for the Hebrew language. And so new words were coined by Ben Yehuda for objects but from all this. You know, they had to develop new words because there's no Hebrew word in the Bible for doll or ice cream. And I'll tell you this right now. I know the Hebrew word for ice cream because I love ice cream. It's called glida. Glida is the Hebrew word that is uh, the word for ice cream. Um, and that's a development of uh, Ben Yehuda, glida, uh, towel. A bicycle and hundreds of more words he developed in order to communicate with his son. And they would actually go on to have four more children. Uh, Devorah would die a few years later, actually, leaving the five kids with Eliezer. Sadly, think about this. Eliezer Ben Yehuda said to his in-laws, I only got a couple months to live. I've got tuberculosis. I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, guess what? He lives. His wife dies of tuberculosis, Devorah, uh, and leaves the children with Eliezer. What about Hebrew in the school? Well, Ben Yehuda would introduce Hebrew as the language of instruction and study in school. So it's kind of, you have to think big picture here, but as Jewish people are immigrating from Eastern Europe and Russia into the Holy Land, they're moving into areas of cities just outside of modern Tel Aviv today, cities like, it's called like Rehovot, or Rishon Letzion, or Netziona, um, or uh, Pektaktiva, Tikva, are these cities that were developed in the, in the 1800s as farming communities of Jewish people. And so as Jewish people are building farms um, in these Jewish communities, they begin to build schools for their kids. And that's when Ben Yehuda was able to go into these places and say, I think you should have Hebrew classes. I'll teach them. 
And so he's taking the things that he's developing with his son and, and the writings that he's doing, and he's coming in and he's teaching the young children in the school, and, and they, they want them to do it. Ben Yehuda introduced Hebrew as the language of instruction and study in schools. He gained the support of educators who were enthusiastic Jewish nationalists. Teaching Hebrew in schools was a very practical solution to the problem of immigration from different countries who spoke a variety of languages. And so once again, even it wasn't just Eliezer's passion. Of course, he's the one who thought about it and enacted it and was crazy enough to do it. But because of his passion, others got behind it and were willing to put it in their curriculum, in their schools. And sure enough, over time, uh, a short amount of time, actually, it became a part of the curriculum of most Jewish schools where Hebrew is being taught over the language that's being taught in their homes um, uh, from wherever they were coming from. And then also words, words, words. What does that mean? He became a uh, le le lexicographer. I'm trying to remember how to say that properly. I think I did. He culminated his 17-volume work, which is a complete dictionary of ancient and modern Hebrew. And it was completed by Henda, who was actually his second wife after Devorah's death, and his son after Ben Yehuda's death. Uh, he fashioned over 300 new Hebrew words out of the ancient Hebrew structures, and since then, modern Hebrew has a lexicon of more than 75,000 words. These include 2,400 deliberately signed, uh, designed Hebrew alternatives for foreign words and recent words and recent terms, which the ancient language never contained. So it's a development of the modern component of, is, of uh, the Hebrew language. So that when you come to Israel with me, You'll learn, you'll, you'll go, I would like some glita, please. I want some ice cream, but you can also say, I want a hamburger because that's how you say hamburger in Hebrew is you say hamburger. See, now you know how to say, I would like a hamburger in Hebrew. Okay. There, there's a lot of uh, words that were developed. Some of them are unique. Some of them take on the nationality of other languages. Arabic actually influences Hebrew quite a bit. Um, it was uh, Eliezer Ben Yehuda that actually believed that Arab, uh, Arabic is based off of Hebrew and was saying Hebrew is the father of the Arabic language. Um, and that was a belief of his as well uh, because of the ancient nature and ancient, uh, uh, yeah, the ancient nature of the, of the Hebrew language. And if you listen to Arabic and Hebrew, they are very similar in nature, actually, that you can understand some of the things that are being said back and forth, even though they'll sound very different when you're hearing them, the words, if you slow down and listen, you will be able to see the, diff the, the similarities. Like shalom in Hebrew is salem in, in Arabic. Um, and in fact, when archaeologists go around and they're looking for certain towns that would be biblical in nature, they can actually just go to the Arabic name of that town and find out what it is. Like Tel Dan actually was the Arabic word for judge, because Dan in Hebrew means to judge. And so they just looked up the Arabic word for judge and they found the city and that's where they uncovered the ancient city of Dan, um, which is uh, amazing. So there's a lot of similarity between the two languages there, which is something that Eliezer Ben Yehuda was very passionate about. Uh, even to this very day, words, words, words. The academy, uh, uh, he created what was called the Hebrew Language Committee, which is Va'ad HaLashon HaIvrit. And it's an academy um, that was established in 1890 by Eliezer Ben Yehuda, who was its first president. As Hebrew became the spoken language in Palestine and was adopted by the educational system, the Hebrew Language Committee published bulletins and dictionaries. 
to help the students and to help develop the language. That's what he was the, the head of. It coined thousands of words that are in everyday use today. Its successor today, when you go to Israel, you'll actually end up going to the Academy of the Hebrew Language, which is the same organization, the same committee, just a different name. Uh, its successor, the Academy of the Hebrew Language, has continued this mission of creating new Hebrew words to keep up with modern usage. Uh, and so, again, here's an influence of Eliezer ben Yehuda. Revival of the Hebrew language. What finally brought about the revival of the Hebrew of Hebrew were the developments in the communities of the first Aliyah, which is the first immigration that took place of Jewish people between 1881 and 1903, which is what Eliezer ben Yehuda was a part of. He was a part of the first Aliyah. Aliyah in Hebrew means to go up. Like you're going up to Jerusalem. So they call immigration Aliyah. And so the first Aliyah was what uh, he was a part of. And uh, the second Aliyah, these were when waves of Jewish people were coming back to the land. And that's when he was able to influence them with Hebrew. The first Hebrew schools were established in these communities. Hebrew became a spoken language of daily affairs and finally became a systematic and national language. So that by 1922, think about this for a moment. He comes over in 1881, 1881, and we're not just talking about like American or English going into some country, English already being established, and then it goes into some country that's being developed and becomes one of the part of the, the languages spoken in that country. No, no, no. We're talking about in 40 years, his wife said, I don't know how to speak Hebrew. And there were no Hebrew speaking people whatsoever. It went from that to by 1922, Hebrew became one of the official languages of the land, according to the British government. Think about that for a moment. 40 years, and all of a sudden, everybody is speaking Hebrew. And its new form, uh, formal status contributed to, the, uh, to its diffusion, which is the idea that it's spreading around. People are speaking it and adapting to it. One month later, at the age of 64, Ben Yehuda would eventually pass away from tuberculosis. I want, I want to read this to you. This, this comes from British uh, historian Cecil Roth. He said, before Ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. They did. They spoke it in synagogues. After him, they did. Before Ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After him, they did. I want to go back really quick. Excuse me as I make you dizzy as we go back for a moment. I want to come back to, uh, come on. Sorry, sorry. I'm going to come back to this picture right here. Our three men. I want to wrap up this lesson on Israel's independence in history with these three men to give you an idea of what these three men did. And also to remind you, it wasn't just these men. There were men and women standing behind them, helping them, encouraging them, pushing them forward, establishing organizations, working with them in committees, congresses, all of that stuff. These weren't just single men working all on their own. They had a lot of support, but they become the tip of the spear in what was going on. Let's start really quick with Theodore Herzl, now that we're all done. Theodore Herzl helps to establish a political movement that's global. It's global. Theodore Herzl 
creates what's called the modern understanding of Zionism. The idea that the Jewish people have a right to exist in their ancient homeland is not just something for Jewish people living in the homeland to believe. It's some, an idea for people all around the world to get behind. I'm a Zionist. I'm a Christian Zionist. I still believe the things that Theodore Herzl taught back in the late 1800s, early uh, late 1900s, uh, and at the turn of the century. I still agree with the things that he wrote about. But his vision was a global vision. It was global. He was trying to move the political pieces of the chessboard in order to grant the Jewish people the right to return and to establish their own independence. And it would eventually happen by 1948. He wouldn't live to see it, but he would definitely have a massive impact on that global idea, so much so that here you are today. I know that you don't just believe in the politics of Israel. You believe biblically in a state of Israel. There's God's doing something. It's very important. So the big picture is Theodore Herzl. Then we zoom in on David Ben-Gurion, who would become Israel's first prime minister. But see, David Ben-Gurion isn't thinking about the big pictures of the political structures and empires of the world that would give permission for the Jewish people returning. He would be conscientious of that and working with people to eventually develop, to, to create an independent Jewish state. But he was influential in creating... Whoa, that was awesome. He was influential in creating the government that would become Israel's first government when they were able to establish a Jewish state. He was influential in establishing the Jewish agency, which was helping Jewish people return, setting up systems and infrastructure in the land. See, Theodore Herzl only stepped foot in the land, I believe, twice in his lifetime. I mean, and he was only there for a moment. It was just a visit. See, it was David Ben-Gurion who lived there. He lived the day to day. He worked the government. He knew the people. He was a community organizer. He knew how to bring people together. Everybody knew David Ben-Gurion. He would implement infrastructure and all of the things that would eventually help develop a Jewish state so that by the time May 14th, 1948 comes around, by the time it becomes a reality, they already have a government set up, ready to go. Why is that like that? Because David Ben-Gurion and the team, the swarms of people around him helping make this thing happen, were able to establish a provisional government to make it a reality. And then finally, the last piece of the puzzle is Eliezer Ben-Yehuda. I mean, think about this man, what he did. See, everything else was political in nature, trying to get people, convince people, and to organize into structure. See, his... His, if you notice, his ideas weren't really so much in politics. It was in culture. He was thinking about. And then we speak German. Why would we do that? Or we speak Russian or we speak Yiddish or we speak whatever the language might be. How is that? Why would we do that? So for him, it was a cultural thing that would bring Zionism in the language, the culture of the language, the unity of the language, to use Hebrew as a unifying force to help the people be one. Because when they were all coming back from various parts of the world, they were scattered. They were broken into segments, into different groups. It would be Eliezer Ben Yehuda who would start with his wife and his son, that would develop a language, resurrect a language, which no other people group have ever done in human history, 
They would resurrect the language in order not just to speak Hebrew. It has to be said, it wasn't just about speaking Hebrew. It was about the fact that it would unify a people and bring them together and make them one. That's what he was behind. And if there's a language that the Jewish people should be speaking in the land of Israel, it's definitely not German. It's definitely not English. It's definitely none of those. It should be Hebrew. And so he would work 20-hour days to make this become a reality, a cultural component to the, to the development of the state of Israel. And there are so many other individuals and leaders that we could put up here, but these three pillars, if you will, of the modern state of Israel helped to build the foundation upon which this whole thing stands. And you know what's really interesting? Every one of these men faced opposition. Theodor Herzl faced opposition. The Kaisers of Germany, the Kaiser of Germany, the Sultan of Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire said, get out of here. We don't want you. We don't want a Jewish state. Uh, Ben-Gurion would face opposition in the land as he was not only facing opposition from his own people who disagreed politically with him, but also the Arab communities around him. He'd have to find a way to protect his people uh, with a military, with a, with a security structure, because he faced opposition from internally and externally. And you know what Eliezer Ben Yehuda's uh, um, uh, opposition was? Jewish people, especially the Orthodox Jewish people, who thought it was an abomination that they would that Eliezer would take a holy language, the holy Hebrew language that's spoken in synagogue and read in prayers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and boil it down and and make it secular for the common person to speak. Isn't that amazing? His opposition were the Orthodox Jewish people. But then also think about this. Let me end with this encouraging note. Every one of these men were impacted by Christians. Christians like you and me. Theodore Herzl was impacted by William Heckler. Why? Because William Heckler, an Anglican uh, chaplain, came to him and said, you're on a biblical mission, Theodore Herzl, and I'm here to help you. You're not just on a political mission. This is biblical. I'm by your side. And he stayed by his side, Theodore Herzl's side. A Christian man stayed behind his, uh, stayed beside him until his death. He was with him till his, his last moments on earth. David Ben-Gurion was fascinated with Christian writings and Christian individuals, so much so that when Steve Herzig went to uh, Tel Aviv a couple of years ago and was touring Ben-Gurion's home, he looked and saw one of Friends of Israel's older uh, His book in his bookshelf, along with other Christian writings as well, he is fascinated by Christians. And Eliezer Ben Yehuda, I told you, George Eliot, a Christian writer who was writing positively about the Jewish people from a from a love, a perspective of elevating a Jewish status, not anti-Semitism, but elevating a Jewish status, just as William Heckler, Theodore Herzl's friend, said it's the job of all Christians to love the Jewish people. That's what he said in his writings. The same thing with George Eliot. George Eliot would write from a perspective that elevated the Jewish status, not put it down. And he would also write about Jewish people returning to the homeland long before even Theodore Herzl did, enough to impact Eliezer ben Yehuda and other influential Jewish people to return to the, their ancient homeland. Think about that. All of them impacted by Christians. I hope that you are encouraged uh, by this class, Israel's independence and leaders. 
as we were honoring and celebrating Israel's 75th, 75th anniversary. Uh, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. It required work, lots of work, attention, a lot of obstacles. But God was always moving. God was always moving, and I love it. God was always making his presence known, sometimes in very loud ways, like men like William Heckler, and sometimes in very subtle ways, when men like Eliezer Ben Yehuda would just simply read a book and be impacted by it. You never know what God's going to do and how God influenced these men who would become the pillars of the modern state of Israel. Thank you for listening to our FOI Equip podcast. Again, I want to remind you to go to foiequip.org and sign up to be on our mailing list. We'd love to see you at one of our free live online FOI Equip classes. Also, be sure to listen to our other podcasts like the Jew and Gentile podcast hosted by yours truly and Steve Herzig. Also, the Gesher podcast hosted by Ty Perry. You can find out more ways to get involved with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry by visiting foiequip.org. FOI Equip is an outreach of the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry. We are a worldwide evangelical ministry proclaiming biblical truth about Israel and the Messiah while bringing physical and spiritual comfort to the Jewish people. Hey, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.